John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 611.GE3704, certificate number 26275, hypercolor. Know what? Heat makes it happen. Changes color with heat. Only by genera. There was a special moment in... Um, in, a, in every young boy's life. That's right. And this actually was a special moment in a lot of young boys' lives, and young girls too. In the late 80s, early 90s, there was a global fashion and um, music movement called Rave. Uh, Rave started actually on the island of Ibiza. 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 Ibiza, or Ibiza. <laughs> uh, as as it might be pronounced by someone like me who mispronounces things. It's like how depending on how angry the British tourist is. You Ibiza. Know, is he actually trying? Is he saying Ibiza, or is like did the cab drop him off at the wrong hotel and he's like bloody Ibiza? It is true that something like I mean, if someone were to say to you, "I've just back from Paris," oh my gosh, you would really hate them or think they were being extremely funny. Well, extremely, they were trying to be extremely funny. But Ibiza is one of those places where pronouncing it with a lisp, with a uh, Castilian lisp, is the accepted way of describing the island. It's not a lisp. Let me correct you right there. Spaniards oh. are very conscious of the fact that it is not a lisp oh. because they do pronounce the letter S the way we do. Sure. Lisp free. They're capable of saying the letter S. It's just that to distinguish between S and C or Z in many parts of Spain. They put a little tongue uh, accent on it. They put a little tongue on it. Yeah, Ibiza. It comes up, the one time it came up for me was, do I tell my friends I'm going to Barcelona? Or Barcelona. Or Barcelona. Do I have to handle the hypercorrection, which is like hypercolor, but more annoying? Or am I willing to just kind of be slightly wrong? Right, and of course that lisp is the Catalonian lisp, not the Castilian lisp. But these things come up when you are a Spanish-speaking person from Spain who's trying to speak Spanish to people in Central America and Mexico who do not have this uh, little tongue flippity-doo. And if you're a Spaniard who says civilización for you're civilization get... to a Mexican person, you do, you, you probably, I, I think the effect is the same as it would be in English. You sound like it's, it's a weird affectation. Uh, or it would be like eye-rollingly posh or other, right? Ah, interesting. It's, it has a kind of class component to it where you're not speaking street, you're speaking like fancy Spanish. Like when I lived in Spain, like companies would do two different dubs for movies. Like Disney would have The Little Mermaid in Spain Spanish yeah. with the theta and probably separate metaphors and uh, slang and whatnot. And then there would be one for Latin America. All of Latin America, even though Argentina and Mexico and uh, Peru don't all have the same pronunciation or slang. Sure, but that would be one of the main differences, right? That the, you wouldn't hear that. There would be, it would be theta-free. But Ibiza is an island off the coast of Spain in the Mediterranean that has long been a vacation spot for people from the United Kingdom and other Northern European countries. And it had a sort of distinctive DJ culture there even before the Brits really took it over. And a group of British sort of summer vacationers, including Paul Oakenfield and a couple of his friends, 
Um, Paul Oakenfield, the dwarf from The Hobbit? Uh, no, that was uh, Tribly Oakenfield, <laughs> uh, who was the father of Gwoin Orphanfield. Uh, no, Paul Oakenfield uh, was a British guy, a disc jockey, or a lover, let's say, of DJ music. And uh, this was during also an era where uh, there were new designer drugs. And I think maybe it's Paul Oakenfold, not Paul, Paul Oakenfield. Oakenfold? Oakenfold. Paul Oakenfold. So you just created a, a fictional person halfway between influential DJ Paul Oakenfold and, and Gimli, the, the Hobbit dwarf yeah. Thorin Oakenshield. So it's Oakenfold, Paul Oakenfold. Which is not as good as Oakenfield. If I were he, I would have changed my name. I think we have the power to change it right now. Like, it's not like he, he does not have descendants who are listening, I would assume. <laughs> I mean, they're probably listening to the music, but they maybe don't know who it was by. Let's just claim ownership of the music, in fact. We invented rave. John Roderick, three syllables, mm -hmm. invented rave culture. But this music came up at a time when there was a new drug, uh, MDMA or MDA or ecstasy, or what the kids now are calling squeak. No, they don't call it squeak, but they do call it molly, which is basically just the same drug that we called ecstasy. We can just make up future street names for drugs like a science fiction movie like he's high on croak. I've been know? trying to he's convince people. Black. Uh, that squeak is a drug for 30 years when people are like, whoa, you seem weird. It's like, yeah, well, I did a bunch of squeak earlier. And I've, I've never had a single person respond. That's not a real drug. Well, I've never had somebody do that. And I've never had somebody go, what I want is for somebody to go like, whoa, what's squeak? Like, how do I try squeak? I've never had either response. People just look at me blankly. I'm sure there's a Law & Order SVU where the killer was high on, high on squeak. squeak, a new drug the kids are making out of uh, odor eaters uh, mixed, <laughs> mixed, mixed with, with tang crystals candles. or something. Yeah, exactly, yeah. scented candles. Uh, so this drug really increased your uh, this physical sensation. Uh, it was a body drug. It wasn't, I mean, it was hallucinogenic, but it was, uh, you were also made, it made very tactile. You wanted to be touched. You wanted to touch other things. You're and making Molly sound pretty good to the future, by the way. Well, if, the they don't ha if they don't have it, they are going to be trying to synthesize it now. Do you need to give them a formula? There are downsides to Molly. Uh, teeth grinding is one. We should, we should hit those pretty hard. <laughs> um, what if we have impressionable younger listeners? Uh, it does very bad things to your spinal fluid. It'll ultimately... I, what, what does it do to your spinal fluid? Well, it's degenerative of your... Um, um, like uh, amygdala, uh, <laughs> amygdala. If you have more than one, amygdala. Uh, I, you know, and I'm sure that there are going to be listeners of this program who are very pro Molly, who are going to yell at me about that. You're, but, you're trying to thread a needle here, and maybe that was. You don't want to seem like a out of touch grandpa, no, warning I, the kids to stay away from harmless water soluble drugs like ecstasy. But I also don't want any uh, impressionable listeners to think that I'm advocating for ecstasy or Molly. We both have children. You know. They do. Uh, let's just say that drugs have negative side effects and leave it at that. Uh, oh, you can also get very dehydrated on ecstasy, largely because you are sweating and dancing. Jumping around. And not like a crazy drinking thing. enough water. And dehydration is a real problem. And your spine is deteriorating and it's going nch, nch, every time your vertebrae nch, nch. rub together. And pretty soon you become one of those 24-year-old ravers with a pacifier in their mouth uh, that are also like basically have turned, their bones have turned to jelly. It was actually skeletal deterioration that turned Paul Oakenfold into the... Paul Oakenfield. Into the, into the dwarf, <laughs> Paul Oakenshield. Um, I remember when I played Dungeons & Dragons a lot, there actually was a treasure called the Crown of Might, which could turn your opponent's bones to jelly. So uh, it doesn't actually, it's not actually might. You, you stay the same mightiness. It just makes your opponents less much, mighty, much less mighty. Yeah. And in, uh, unfortunately, I utilized it one time on a campaign and one of my fellow dwarves on the campaign said, what, once I was like, I changed that bugbear's bones to jelly. Uh, one of my fellow campaigners was like, and I chop him up with a sword and then claimed all the experience points because I hadn't actually killed him. I just turned his bones to jelly. And I was like, turning someone's bones to jelly kills them. So wait, there's no concept of an assist in Dungeons and Dragons? Like, oh. like you don't get anything for your stat line if you, unless you're the one that makes the, the green slime or whatever draw its final breath. I feel like maybe the dungeon master tried to do that, split up the experience points and the treasure. Um, but I was not satisfied by that because I really stood my ground on having killed him. 
I can't believe how often you pull the I am not and have never been a nerd card. I'm not. I never no, have I been. I don't like uh, Deep Space Nine. <laughs> I, I, I don't read uh, Spider-Man comic books because I'm too busy, you know, on my campaign as the uh, chaotic neutral elf uh, Roderico. I was always chaotic good, as I am in, in, real, in real life. life. That's good. That's, that's, uh, and I was always a magic user, again, as I am in real life. But the thing is, <laughs> I was not a nerd because playing Dungeons and Dragons in seventh and eighth grade confines your nerddom to junior high, which is a time when everything that happens in junior high should stay in junior high. You have never played a game of Dungeons and Dragons since? Since ninth grade. grade. Okay. And you feel like there's a statute of limitations. You feel like you're a woman who can get her virginity back. I feel like junior high, the moment you enter the door, you are in a different universe for however long that junior high lasts, whether it's two or three years. And then you come out the other side and you are what junior high made you, but you don't carry any of the tarnish with you. That's my personal belief. It's my religion. What happens in eighth grade stays in eighth grade. It has to, right? Because those are terrible, terrible, terrible years for anyone. If you are successful in junior high, you also do not get to carry that forward. But aren't your peers coming up with you in ninth grade? Or do all the people who know about your nerdy ham radio set or whatever, crystal radios, they go to a different school? No, no, no. They are also desperate to have all of that time forgotten. So yes, they all, everyone knows one another's secrets. That's the terrible thing about going to the same high school that your junior high feeds into. You all know, you all remember that time when a girl said, your milk mustache doesn't compensate for your lack of a mustache. And then you're shamed by all your friends for Seems months. like an oddly specific <laughs> hypothetical burn, John. <laughs> <laughs> you don't, you're never, you know, the fact that you didn't have a wristwatch that actually had like a liquid crystal display that had video games on it. By the time you're in ninth grade, you're fine again. We should send all the, the junior high kids or middle schoolers, as mm -hmm. they're now called, they should mm -hmm. all be sent to some kind of island, to Ibiza or some, you know, someplace in the, maybe in the Pacific. Do not send them to Ibiza, but I've had a long-standing program to send them to work for the National Park Service, building trail, because they have this new physicality of uh, their hormones are coming in. They have new strength in their muscles and no social skills or ability to interact with other human beings, right. and younger they, and, or older. And they want that, you know, they're going to want that wilderness of, of uh, you know, forced amnesia. Right. So, so why not the up, Tetons? Up to the mountains, you live in old Works Progress Administration cabins, and you work <clears throat> improving the trails in our national parks. And at night, you sit around and sing Kumbaya with an acoustic guitar. You have some very hand-picked adult counselors who are, super duper vetted for not being creeps. And that's where you spend those two years. I mean, obviously your parents don't care. Your parents don't want you around. Well, that's why I'm a little skeptical of this because obviously we would all benefit from not having mm -hmm. uh, middle schoolers. Everyone in our would presence. benefit. Society would be so much happier, but it's a little bit like internment camps. Oh, Here are wow. these millions of undesirable people. We all want them far away. Let's put them in the woods behind barbed wire. I prefer to think of to it work. as a form of national service because I also believe in a universal draft, but not a draft necessarily for the military. You could be drafted and you could choose the military, but you could also choose the Army Corps of Engineers or you could choose the Department of Commerce. Yeah, it's like picking a merit badge. Right. If you're not one of the guys that wants to get the camping merit badge, you can do astronomy. And if you want to spend your two years of national service between 18 and 20 working for the Department of Commerce as a, like a apprentice economist, that should be part of, of national service. But I think everyone should also spend middle school in national service. So are all your social theories about how to keep young people away from you? No, I, I just believe in the power of uniforms. <laughs> oh, they have to wear uniforms. Well, of course, if you're like in the Department of Commerce as a cadet, you need to wear your cadet uniform, which I guess is a clip-on tie. And it's a, not to have a sash. Pocket. Oh, yeah, well. A place to show your many accomplishments. Sure, a tiara, maybe. <laughs> I wasn't thinking of a tiara, but okay. But one of the uniforms of the rave culture nice. uh, Look was, at that. was kind of a, like a throwback to hippie tie-dye, like hippie fashion was a strange amalgam of, I think what in the late 60s, what people were going for was a return to what they imagined a more natural kind of person 
war. Sure. And maybe even a, a, a more in-touch Aboriginal kind of person, you know, mm. like let's appropriate some leather fringe on sure. my sleeves. Buckskin jackets exactly. and long hair, unkempt beards. But tie-dye clothing was a component of hippie culture. Which is weird because that's forward thinking, you know, that's Tomorrowland. It is, right? But it, it harkens back to a time when you're trying to dress up your clothes with simple materials, string and dye and wax. But what it produced was this kind of swirling psychedelic clothes that responded to people on LSD, or, or rather, they responded to it. Uh, colorful patterns and so forth. Now, by the time rave music came out, we were all well aware that brightly colored clothes and exaggerated figures really helped you as a hallucinating person have a better time. It's but obviously much more exciting to look at bright colors than it is to look at drab colors. That's why nobody's going to be taking a, tab, a second tab of anything at your little work camps where everybody's wearing no. clip-on ties. No, everyone at the work camp will be dressed in some form of like soul uh, encapsulating uniform. Like just, you just need to kind of crush individuality in moments like that. So people work better as a member of a team. No temptation to smoke anything or drop anything because nothing will start to swirl in your kind of drab coveralls. That's right. And it's going to make ha using your hatchet the following day to make a park bench even more difficult. Um, you'll be drinking homemade blackberry wine in those situations. But in Ibiza in the late 80s, fashion took a dramatic turn in a very short amount of time uh, because this rave culture exploded out of Ibiza and went global, first in Europe and in the UK, and then it transported itself to the United States and took on a new character in Los Angeles and in Florida as other things as hip hop influences were added in, but it went, uh, like the street fashion went from pretty strangely tailored mid to late eighties, skinny tie proto or, or rather post new wave to this sudden switcheroo, big baggy, bright colored t-shirts, smiley faces, shell toed Adidas. 70s throwback, especially the smiley faces, right? Smiley faces, but really exaggerated. Uh, huge sort of smiley faces and bright, bright colors. Well, would you make any connection to the the pre-existing 80s love of pastels? The the Miami Vice palette, the Ocean Pacific surf, uh, the Vogue for surfwear. It turned the nozzle up on all of that really boldly. And a lot of the surf companies got into the rave culture uh, because it wasn't that much of a change in their fashion. Like big t-shirts just got bigger. Right. They already had machines that would make large pink t-shirts. Yeah. Big. A, uh, a tiny adjustment can turn this into, into rave wire. Surfer shorts suddenly just became giant surfer shorts and denim surfer shorts, which are the maybe the worst fashion of all time. Well, maybe if people were having kind of skeletal degeneration, maybe the clothes were the same size. Maybe the shorts just looked bigger on you. Oh, interesting. Because the molly was turning you to jelly. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout i feel like those were very crowded dance floors and you wanted to it was less about looking like, here's my body, and much more like, whoa, check me out. I'm flapping and undulating. Uh, that's right. Coming I'm a, at you. I'm something for you to look at, Tripper. And it, it, it went as far as people dressing as giant Pac-Men and big, uh, you know, like Muppets. 
and lots of beads, crazy glasses. Uh, the pacifier actually was a fashion accessory for a long time because it did uh, give you something to it's, gnaw. It's the teeth grinding. When yeah. you were having this uh, this sort of speedy teeth grind reaction. It's like when beavers don't grind their teeth on something, the buck teeth get longer and longer and eventually it kills them. curls around and kills them. And that is also true of kids on ecstasy. Right. And also middle schoolers, it's one of the reasons that they should be sequestered. Uh, because they otherwise, you it's know. true. Why do we get our new giant teeth at like 10? That's the worst age to get a new giant set of teeth. Yeah. Your head is not big enough for them. <laughs> You're not ready for that yet. Nope. We should get our teeth at 40, right? I wish I had new teeth right now uh, exactly. because I have successefully ground them down with all of my Molly induced fretting. I guess, no, uh, I would settle for a third set, you a know, third set of like, teeth like sharks that came in soon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, contemporaneous with this. Right about the same time, you had in the Pacific Northwest, in our own city of Seattle. Here in lovely green Seattle. That's right. A unexpected and kind of, at this point, dormant fashion industry. Wait, wait, wait. Fashion in Seattle? It's, it sounds strange. Maybe this is only funny to anyone who's ever gone out to eat here <laughs> and sees what people in Seattle actually wear when they are, quote, dressing up. Yeah. The fanciest people in Seattle just put on a recently washed flannel and fleece jacket. I dressed up. What? This is my nice fleece. Yeah. This is my weekend fleece. This is the fleece I wore at my wedding and I can still fit into it. It's a, it's a thing, I think, that descends from the software culture and also the outdoor culture here. When people started to get rich in Seattle, a sign of affluence was that you were a sports, outdoor sports person. You skied and kayaked and did all these things that your employees couldn't afford to do. And maybe a little suspect to dress up other ways, you know, to actually dress nicely to go to dinner. That's, you know, that's what they do in big cities, but we're, yeah. we're Seattle. We're the Yukon gold rush city. You yeah. Know? We were the casual Friday before casual Friday. We don't do what those dooted up city folks do. Well, and you know, Levi's is a San Francisco company and they are also the inventors of Dockers, uh, which was Dockers. the pant, the official pant of casual Friday. The official pants of Seattle. That's there's a pair of Dockers on our flag, on our khaki flag. So, so it is uh, right. That's right. Right next to our Douglas fur. There's a pair of khaki. It's, it's Douglas furs on pants. a khaki field. <laughs> and the khaki field is actually a cotton poly blend made by Dockers. Well, and the flag itself is pleated. <laughs> uh, but so the West coast has always privileged uh, a kind of casual fashion, let's say, but, in the 1970s, there was a company in Seattle called Britannia. Right. And it seems unlikely that it would be called Britannia because it has, we have very little to do anymore, at least, with Britain. We don't go to Ibiza. We do not. If you're doing the drinking game where you uh, take a drink every time John says Ibiza. Ibiza. Oh, you can, Ibiza. You can do it now. Uh, but, and Britannia actually had a logo of a little Union yeah, Jack flag. I, they made polos. I had brightly colored pastel polos with a kind of a elongated union jack. But they were most famous as a jeans maker ah. during the late 70s fad for fashion jeans. Like, which what what is that what are we talking about here big bell bottomy nope, jeans No, nope. in the late 70s there was like the first iteration of uh the idea of boutique jeans. Jeans had always been workwear mm. prior to that. And during the 60s, the hippies had sort of made jeans again a new cultural force, but always like worn, uh, uh, stonewashed, tattered jeans. It's casual. It's what you wear in a muddy field, yeah, not it, out to dinner. And it indicated, uh, as our contemporary fashion is trying to indicate that you are a working person or a forest person, even if you are not, if you're a software developer, but you have a $600 hatchet and, uh, and wax your mustache, uh, that is a hearkening to a kind of working class that doesn't exist anymore. And in the sixties, the, the worn denim look was hearkening to a time when people were working on the railroad, just as the late fifties and the folk music of that time hearkened back to what they considered to be a more authentic time. It's a little ironic since working class people are probably constantly, you know, looking at magazine ads and trying to dress more like how they think the swells are dressing. Sure, you wonder. And the swells just look like them. But in the late 70s, there was this uh, new fashion where jeans themselves could be high fashion, or at least 
they were now expensive and they were very dark denim. They weren't meant to look like they'd been washed or used. They were tight and they were made of like as dark a a denim as you could have. Gloria Vanderbilt jeans being sort of a prime example of jeans that were now like a a high fashion. Her greatest invention until she gave us Anderson Cooper. Thank goodness for Anderson Cooper, right? Who grew up in, in a house populated with people, I'm sure, in very dark jeans. House covered, wallpapered fully, a New York penthouse wallpapered fully in very, very dark indigo denim. But it, during this period, Britannia jeans were a major force. And actually, Britannia became the number one denim purveyor in the United States for quite a period. There was a, a, a fad for this Seattle jeans fashion. Yeah. And their motto was, you know, my home is Seattle, but I live in Britannia. My home is Dallas, but I live in Britannia. This was their ad campaign. My home is blank, but I live in Britannia. Is the idea that you live in your jeans or is the idea that there's an imaginary mind space in which all Britannia wearers can hang out together and uh, like-minded, you know, thought space? No, it's not a colonialism tagline. Like, but is it, is it a fictional country? I live in country? India, but my home is Britannia always. No, I mean, is it like a fictional country? Are we supposed to imagine no. ourselves on the island of Britannia? No, it just fellow? means that you are wearing your jeans. And it, and it's a thing where people would be dancing in a, in a fake disco and someone would say, nice jeans. And the other person would go, well, I live in Seattle, but my home is Britannia. Can you imagine if somebody said that to you? Nice jeans. Or if somebody said, my home is Britannia. Yeah, exactly. What, what a jerk. Well, actually, one time in my life, I had occasion to say it. Wait, really? Yes. You told someone you lived in Britannia? So I was working in a pizza parlor in Seattle in my early 20s, and it was a busy pizza parlor on Broadway, and we were slinging slices all day, every day. People would line up and we'd, you know, serve slices and salads. And one day, the comedian, the popular comedian of the 1980s, Sandra Bernhardt, Oh, lover, lover on Letterman. That's right. Uh, she was she was a cultural force at the time, and, and one that didn't uh, her work didn't really survive through the ages. We do not need to explain her to uh, our mankind's descendants, right? But she had several years there where she was someone that was well known and considered, I guess, pretty edgy throughout her career, mainstream edgy. Sandra Bernhardt comes into the pizza parlor, and this is when Seattle was really a hip town. And so you this would see a grunge era this is story. The, right in the center of the grunge period. And it was a time you'd see celebrities around because people were coming to Seattle just to figure out what was going on. Mm-hmm. And it was the middle of the summer. And all of a sudden she's in line to get a slice with probably some hangers on and some whatchamacallit. Was Madonna there? She was not. Sandra uh, Bernhardt famously was a friend of Madonna's. But Madonna does not stand in line for pizza. She doesn't. And Sandra Bernhardt, I think, was standing in line for pizza as a kind of like, I'm just a regular person kind of move. Mm-hmm. She could have sent somebody in, but she wanted to be there and like be regular. And as she's coming up to the the pizza station that I'm manning, I uh, someone said to me, not her, but someone said to me like, Oh, you look cool because I did look cool. I was pretty cool. We all assume you looked cool. Yeah, I was very cool. I was not wearing rave clothes. You were not playing Dungeons and Dragons. No. Probably. No, I was wearing some grunge clothes. I don't know what kind, but somebody made the remark and they probably were being ironic because everything we ever said to each other then was ironic. Mm -hmm. But like, you look cool. And I said, well, I live in Seattle, but my home is Britannia. And it got a big laugh from the whole crowd standing there and my coworkers too. And Sandra Bernhardt gave me like props, like actually finger guns at me. Wow. And I felt like it was a moment maybe where I was going to get discovered and taken to Hollywood <laughs> and made into an ingenue. Coming soon at the Chuckle Hut in Louisville. That's right. Here he is with his one joke. <laughs> but she just like got her pizza. I rang her up. We said a couple of like lols to each other. And then I was back working at a pizza parlor. The, the lights went down. I was living in a gray world again. The comedy highlight of your career was recycling a TV catchphrase. Uh, a TV ad catchphrase. That was the highlight of my young career. I've had a lot of highlights <laughs> since then. That's like the time when I said, uh, yeah, baby, in a Mike Myers voice. And everybody, <laughs> everybody at work had a good laugh. Well, every day you put up a tweet that gets sometimes, you know, 
like six or seven faves. That's yeah. got to feel good. I could probably get up into double digits if I would use more 80s fashion That's advertising. Right. Like nothing comes to me, me and my Calvins. <laughs> there it is. And then Sandra Bernhardt will be like, reply, LOL. So Calvin Klein jeans were another example of this uh, this sort of like uh, elite jean. Right. But Celebr the celebrities would wear in the ads. It's probably a new invention. You would not see a Brooke Shields type modeling jeans before the 80s, huh? No. And jeans went into a decline in the mid 80s. Levi's came back. They became a, um, they became more of a down market accessory. I did not wear jeans in the 80s. Is that right? I don't know if I was aware that they were You uh, were wearing unpopular. short pants though and tall socks. I was right? wearing jams. <laughs> Do you remember jams? <laughs> of course. The shorts with the pineapples and uh, uh, palm leaves on them. What were you wearing in the 80s, if not Levi's? Oh, I was probably wearing jams in the summer. Jams, yeah. But like in, you know, in non-jam weather. Which, gray flannel pants? You know, in gray, in gray Seattle. Uh, it would, I was probably wearing like khaki type things. I was yeah. proto-dockers. Right. Uh, what, did they, were they cargo pants? Did they have little cargo pockets on the edges? No, I never had a cargo oh. pocket space. I had to hold everything in my hands and one thing was always slipping out. It was yeah. the worst. I was like, why don't I have eight pockets to hold all this cargo? Cargo pants also had their moment in the sun, and we'll cover that on a future episode. But in the mid to late 80s in Seattle, there were a little host of fashion brands, including International News, which made in the mid 80s a kind of, uh, they were, along with Esprit, kind of pushing ah, the, the baggy sweatshirt that had a big logo on the front that said International News. Um, it, it was a international style, uh, albeit fairly briefly. Is each of these brands going to have an anecdote where you crack up Rita Rudner or uh, nope. <laughs> Paula Poundstone nope. or somebody? Although I Margaret Cho, I do have uh, <laughs> I do have a personal anecdote about one of these companies, which is a company called Genera. Genera and Genera was also a Seattle company, along with Union Bay, and these were companies that were pioneering. The idea that you would design clothes and then have those clothes made overseas. Oh, that's what, this was not a thing yet. Uh, that this, you would have Bangladeshi children. This was just beginning. And partly it is that um, China was just opening mm. to trade with the West. And Vietnam was just beginning to be a manufacturing uh Possibility. I feel like Clinton lifted the ban on U.S. countries doing business with Vietnam around '93 or '94. Right. So, and this that's was a whole new market. This um, was super early in that um, in that universe, and China started being available to do manufacturing a little bit before that. Yeah. And these Seattle companies, because they were on the Pacific Coast, were able to get clothes manufactured in China and sent over. And it was a, you know, you didn't need to get the railroads involved, right? It was a, they were pioneering this idea. And so their clothes were less expensive and they had the ability to be a small company here, but that could produce a lot of inventory where they didn't have to hire hundreds and hundreds right. of people at sewing machines. Low overhead, small infrastructure. Right. And Seattle already had companies like Eddie Bauer and REI and Filson, Filson that were the outdoorsy stuff. Yeah, that were making outdoors clothes. But this stuff was contemporary fashion stuff. And the Britannia Company, a lot of the people that worked there during its heyday as a major, major jeans manufacturer, kind of splintered out and made their own companies. And Genera was one of these companies. And Genera happened upon, lucked into, or devised a chemical treatment for cotton fabrics that was thermodynamic. It was a set of chemicals that when combined, well, I guess it was called thermochromatic, meaning that if you heated up these chemicals, they would change their, the order of their electrons in such a way that they would change color. Yes. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. 
Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com start. There's a, k- a kind of dye where, uh, you know, if you, you put a salt in there that dissociates at a certain temperature, mm. and when that temperature is reached, suddenly there's a bunch of new ions, you know, in the mix because the salt is dissociated, and then the die that, you know, the molecules change orientation and through some miracle, they were colorless before and they're green now, or they were blue before and they're red now. Right. And this technology we saw in the, again, in the seventies, in the form of mood rings, which were a, a, a fad for a while, you would put a ring on uh, initially they were kind of expensive and then they became very cheap little toys um, where you'd put the ring on and then over the course of the day, your body changes, it, your, your core temperature changes just as a part of being the circadian nature of the human body. Late at night, it's very cold. In the, in the middle of the night, you know, your body temperature goes down. You're probably grossing out cold-blooded listeners. I know, it's weird. To, well, you know, but the thing is in the middle of the day, their temperature goes up because they're presumably basking in one of the many suns. Uh, sure, that that uh, the Earth orbits around. They crawled up a rock and are sitting under a much larger red sun. And that's true of uh, of warm blooded creatures too. In the mid afternoon, our temperature peaks. But the idea of mood rings was that if you got angry, or if you felt passionate, or if you were like oblivious or or impervious or whatever it was, whatever your emotions were. I don't think impervious, impervious? is an emotion. Yeah, that's, I remember. When, <laughs> I'm feeling very impervious today. <laughs> And, um, and everybody's oblivious. It makes me so mad. But the, those temperature changes would be registered on your finger and the ring. You could look at someone's mood ring and tell their mood. And was there, so I, you know, I don't remember that fad uh, firsthand, uh, just being a few years too young for it. So to me, it's just a 70s punchline that it mm-hmm. existed, like along with pet rocks or whatever. But um, was there any actual science for this? Like, d- does the body temperature change actually correlate with emotional state in any way? We all had mood rings, uh, we children of the 70s, and we were always checking one another's mood rings, but the, they were inscrutable. Uh, you would see the colors change, but it never happened fast enough that, like, if you got mad at somebody briefly, it's not like your fingers all of a sudden were 10 degrees hotter. I don't notice that when I'm angry at people. No, like, but I've, I've got hot hands now. You pissed me off, and now I have hot hands. I've got to take off my mittens. I'm so angry at you. Uh, so, no, they were. it was just a thing that you could... I don't know what, maybe you would like rub it between your hands and then put it back on and say like, look, honey, you make hey, my baby. ring red. Uh, but, and there was, and that always worked. There was a Sandra color. Bernhardt would giggle. That's your right. girlfriend would hop into bed with you. What a time to be alive. If you, I'm, I'm sure it was just one more way to be a creep, right? Like, Oh, look, sure. at, look, my ring is right. It was, it, these were actually invented by the herpes virus. <laughs> these rings as, as a way to ensure their own propagation. But there was like a guide that would tell you if your ring is pink, it means that you're, uh, you know, you're ready to rumble. And were there types? Like, are you a certain type of person if your ring is mostly pink versus? I imagine, although in my own experience, everybody's ring was some kind of green blue. It seems a little invasive. I don't like the idea that my privacy is going to be invaded by anybody on the bus can look at my finger and know if I'm feeling uh, angry or happy or impervious or whatever. Well, if that seems invasive, then you would love Genera's early, early, early 90s invention. Oh, I remember. Hypercolor. I remember hypercolor, John. Now, hypercolor was this treatment that they put on clothes. And as your body temperature rose, or if there was any temperature change in contact with this fabric, uh, the molecules would, and the salts, as you described, would agitate in certain ways. And in the case of hypercolor, uh, what happened was the shirts were dyed a color, it just was, like normal. Was it? I remember t-shirts. Is that all we had? No, in fact. Was anybody making uh, hypercolor prom dresses? Over time, uh, Genera evolved 
in the, in the brief time that this was a fashion to yeah. make all kinds of things. But by it, by Thursday, <laughs> they had Panama hats. <laughs> initially, <laughs> the, the fad was, was over by a Friday. Initially, it was just T-shirts, uh, and so the shirt would be dyed a color, let's say light blue, and then there would be this overlay of this thermochromatic dye that would be another color that over the top of the light blue would uh, now the color would appear uh, purple or let's say the under color was light yellow and the over dye was pink. And so it would be a kind of orange, like the over dye would be the color that you initially saw on the t-shirt before it had any contact with heat. Mm -hmm. And then as the heat was applied, the dye itself that over the thermochromatic dye would become clear and revealing the color of the t-shirt underneath. Yeah. Stuff would get lighter basically, lighter. right? Like you'd, you know, you'd, I remember, you know, the rest of the shirt would be green, but the hot spot would be yellow, which I assume is the blue becoming invisible. Right. And that was, I think what differentiated it from, I mean, if you had a shirt that was light and then as it got hot, it would, it got dark, it would just look like sweat stains, <laughs> right? It would just look like somebody put uh, their hand on you and their hand was covered with paint. Whereas if someone touched your shirt and made a handprint on it and underneath the hand, it got lighter, that seemed very technological. You're glowing. Yeah, essentially. It's, uh, and it was fast. It wasn't slow like a mood ring. Right. It happened, it happened really fast so that if you put, if you reached around somebody and put your hands on their stomach, when you pulled your hands away, those handprints would remain. I kind of imagine hypercolor is kind of mostly a murky purple. There was a lot of purples and pinks. That was kind of the the mode of hypercolor. Yeah, right? there were only so many colors that you could create interesting combinations of, and it was limited. I mean, that's the thing about mood rings. They were all blue and green. You know, it's not an infinite palette. But there were, you know, in, in combinations, you could create bold yellows. And unfortunately the technology did not come with very detailed instructions on how to care for these products. And oh. if you put a thermochromatic shirt in a hot washing machine and sure. then in the dryer, it would create some bad vibes. The stuff reacts to heat. So you're, you're changing it. And maybe if it gets too hot, you're changing it permanently, right? It, it will you would change it permanently. And ultimately I think most hypercolor garments ended up being like poo brown. They all turned the same terrible color, which today in our time we refer to as post-hypercolor. Post-hypercolor. Uh, and so Genera had no idea, uh, I don't think, that they had created what would be now called basically a hyper-fad, which was there was no such thing as hypercolor. Then it debuted and became immediately a super-fad because it was in conjunction with this time of rave fashion. The bright pastels were perfect. And it looked like tie-dye. Mm. But also in hip-hop at this moment, there was a, another kind of callback to psychedelia, the Della Soul era, the kind of like Daisy era of sort of fun hip-hop just prior to the real like takeover of, of gangster rap. rap. Which was semi-permanent. And this was, you know, TLC, there was a lot of fun in the fashion of hip hop that that revolved around bright colors. So hypercolor hit the market and was like in the very beginning of 1991, it was a had to have style. And it absolutely overran the company genera. They could not meet demand. And they did the classic move of a company trying to scale up to accommodate a fad. They hired Tons and tons of people, they, they ordered tons and tons of hypercolor uh, to meet this like suddenly $50 million market. Which we're sure will always be here forever, they That's said. Right. They said at meetings. Now that there is hypercolor, there will never not be hypercolor. For thousands of years, there were clothes and color. But now that there are hyperclothes with hypercolor, that will also last for thousands of years. And honestly, I have no idea why you would want someone's handprint on you. It seems, again, like a fashion that invites creep behavior. Although it's good for creep enforcement. Now, it, you know, in our more conscious era of bad behaviors, bad behaviors, Sure. You know, like if there had been a Harvey Weinstein size handprint on, you know, the wrong part of Mira Sorvino's cocktail dress. You could go out into the lobby and say, look, before it faded. 
Right. Um, and I think probably- You wouldn't have to do DNA tests on a blue dress. Well- You would just I, see which parts of the blue dress were a different color. I guess if you were coming out of a room that only had one person in it, but if you were coming out of a rave, how do you really, <laughs> you know, like it would be one of those things where you get all the Prince Charmings lined up, you could, yeah. put, put their hand on your hypercolor. Could you not see fingerprints in the handprint? No, what a, I don't. What a shame. I don't think you could. Uh, and I think it was very popular with elementary age kids. Um, That's what I'm picturing. Yeah. A you know, lot like of, I, I didn't see the fly girls on In Living Color wearing too much hypercolor, but I did see my younger brother and sister wearing it to junior high. Yeah. It's, it was a fun thing for kids. Um, and in during this period, they expanded their line and there were shorts in hypercolor. And I cannot imagine any situation where you would want your shorts to change color. <laughs> like if you're sitting- I would like to know what part of your lap and crotch is- <laughs> Half a degree warmer than the rest. That's exactly. very important to me. Exactly. Like, where do you want warmth uh, broadcast <laughs> from your pants? I don't. I don't see it. But um, the fad lasted an incredibly short amount of time. What are we talking here? Uh, by any fad standards, it was huge in January of 1991, and by July of 1991, wow. the market crashed. If you were doing your uh, John Roderick public service in the mountains of uh, Appalachia, you could have missed it entirely. Yeah, this is only one semester of college. <laughs> right. Uh, like by the time you talk your mom into taking you to Mervyn's and getting you hypercolor, everyone's laughing at your hypercolor shirt. It's this, already done. That's a very specific story that I think might reveal a little too much about me. Now, what is crazy is that my personal anecdote about this is that in that summer, of 1991, I was out of work. I'd formerly been uh, the assistant manager of a bar here called The Off-Ramp. And The Off-Ramp sold to a new owner who wanted her son to occupy my job. And so I was out on the street. You got The Off-Ramp. And I did. They I got took The, the off-ramp, off-Ramp and you got The Shaft. I took The Off-Ramp to no job. And I didn't care that I didn't have a job because that was very grunge. But at a certain oh, point, I ran out of money. And a friend of mine got me a job at a warehouse in Bellevue working as the warehouse expediter for Genera. Wow, you were giving America hypercolor. And so I sat there and people were unpacking boxes from China and repacking them into boxes to for stores that were ordering them. And so I saw every kind of hypercolor cloth, 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 that was coming through the pipeline during a period when the demand for this stuff was crashing. Oh, by the time you were there, the bloom was off the hypercolor rose? It was already happening. And by the time I left, this warehouse, an enormous warehouse in Bellevue, Washington, was full to the rafters with crates and crates <laughs> of hypercolor clothes. It's the last shot of Raiders of the Lost Ark. There, <laughs> but, and there, but they're all full of t-shirts. There were no orders and it uh, it was one of my first exposures to like the downside of being part of like a, a big capitalist swing. Like here we go, we're going, we're swinging for the fences. This should uh, fast forward to you uh, on a visit to Sub-Saharan Africa years later, and all the children are wearing discarded hypercolor clothes, well, which are all brown because they've just been out in the sun the whole time in their thermochromism. And, and they all say, "Congratulations, Buffalo Bills Super Bowl champions." <laughs> and what's de- what's what's amazing is that by 1993, Genera bankrupt. Oh, wow. They went bankrupt and, and sold the name to, you know, to some holding company. Well, they're in a tough spot. You know, you hear about this happening to companies time and time again, like Coleco, the video game company, I think, I I believe they bought Cabbage Patch, maybe? Mm -hmm. Did they buy the Cabbage Patch brand right at the peak Mm -hmm. of Cabbage Patch mania? You know, we got to have a hundred million Cabbage Patches born in our baby mills this year, only to find that America didn't want that the next year. And but what do you do? Do you not make those dolls? Does the fad last longer if you uh, if you induce scarcity? I think, in fact, the owners of Genera uh, said that they wished that they had controlled supply, that they had only made hypercolor available in limited markets. I'm so, skeptical. I think the market is rational is going to realize, wait, these don't look good. Like that's going to happen in six months either way. Well, rave culture lasted a little bit longer. That's true. And it uh, who knows whether or not, I mean, when you think about the Segway scooter, there was a lot of hype about that. It came out and no one bought it. And now it's, as far as I know, only used by mall cops yeah, and I, like, like tours. Wh- like when I'm on my Segway at a rave, like I get the weirdest looks. I know. Well, because your shirt keeps changing color every time somebody <laughs> touches. Get the hell out of Manchester, <laughs> they tell me. And that concludes... 
Hypercolor. Entry 611.GE3704, certificate number 26755, in the omnibus. We sincerely hope that social media does not exist in your era, that if you're free of one of our vices, one of our social ills that we, our generation, created for you, it is that one. But you should know that in our day, people were not so lucky that they could find our faces and content under at Omnibus Project on every popular social media platform of the day, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. It was at Omnibus Project. Uh, John and I were individually on Twitter as well as at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Uh, John also had an Instagram account under that same handle. Our fans often congregated at Facebook as Omnibus Futurelings. You may do the same if Facebook still exists, but really, what are the odds? Our address for email, which was a soon-to-be-doomed form of written electronic communication, was omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, uh, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. It may be a six-month fad. We presume that you have evolved thermochromism in your actual skins. As a defense mechanism. Right. So you could, uh, you know, if somebody touches your bottom, uh, their tentacle print will be left there as evidence of their predatory behavior. You can leave the rave and just thermochrome into a nice uh, conservative Mm -hmm. pantsuit. Thermochrome right in some dockers. And head to work. You can thermochrome yourself so that you blend in with the night sky. Uh, Wouldn't that be great? I wish I could do that. I asked my daughter, oh, I'm sorry. My daughter's mother asked her yesterday, like this was an interesting social experiment. If you could be invisible or fly, which would you choose? And she and I were both on pins and needles listening to our daughter think it through. Because you know that all good-hearted people say fly and all creepazoids say invisible, right? That's right. And we were like, please, please do not let her answer wrong. And she said, (laughs) Invisible, and we both rejoiced because <laughs> only dummies say fly. Like, and we quizzed her and quizzed her, like, well, what if I mean, think about this though you could fly, you don't have wings, you can go as fast as you want, you can hover. And she was like, yeah, but invisible. I mean, are you like a ghost where people walk through you? And we were like, nope, nope, you still bump into things, you still can get hit with rocks. And she was like, mm, still invisible. And I felt so relieved that she was not a dummy. Man, America is just doomed. The good-hearted uh, poets who want to fly. Who just want to fly around like dumb butterflies while other people are invisibly going into banks. Sneaking into locker and rooms. robbing and, and spooking people. Those are the true heroes. Unless you're a character in one of the Porky's movies, you should choose flight. Uh, anyway, futurelings who are hopefully invisible or, or chromothermatic enough to make yourselves seem invisible. No, I hope they're flying. Uh, We hope and pray that the catastrophe that surely will befall us will not come at least within our lifetimes. At least not until Janaris sold off those excess shirts. Yeah, who cares if our kids die in a cataclysm? We'd like to live our full lives. Uh, If the cataclysm comes, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.